October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 46, Every Nation. Last time, we finished up our three-episode arc on the color line. Louis Schief was sent to Los Angeles, which is not a bad place to be exiled, much like LeBron James, and like LeBron James, he never achieved quite the level of his former greatness in Los Angeles. It's a little bit of a prophecy there. Leaving the church yet again, he left it for good, creating what he called the Free Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, nevertheless, learned something from the experience and created the Negro Department. It was, at least, a start. Now, we've spent the past few episodes focusing on one city, and we are way overdue for another look at the big picture. So this episode is going to be a little bit shorter and a little bit lighter on the drama. Just picture it like a leisurely flight to help us keep everything in perspective. Now, Kellogg and Sheaf, people who have dominated our earlier episodes, were big problems. But they were largely American problems. We would be forgiven for thinking that A.G. Daniels, the General Conference president, was focused alone on those problems. But he really was the first General Conference president of a church that was increasingly self-aware that it was a global community. He and his lieutenant, William A. Spicer, pushed missions with a passion. Together they presided over the golden age of Adventist missions for the next 30 years. Now, by the early 1900s, Adventists were in more countries than they weren't. Adventists were spread out all over the world. Now, the review reflected this by expanding in size and detailing the latest missionary advances in far-off places. So readers of the review could read about missionaries being sent to Indonesia, to Puerto Rico, to China, to Spain, to Panama, to Tanzania, to Romania, to Ecuador, Japan, Korea, whew, Malawi, India, Cuba, the Philippines, Kenya, Uruguay, New Guinea, and on and on and on and on. The review became this weekly briefing for Adventist citizens to learn about the latest advances of their missionary armies. And Daniels loved to throw out impressive numbers to show how well the church was doing. He pointed out that in 1863, when the General Conference was organized, there were 3,500 Seventh-day Adventists, tops. Now, 40 years later, there were more than 80,000 members, more than 60,000 of them in America. That's a growth rate of nearly 2,000 Adventists every single year. In 1863, there were 30 pastors. 40 years later, there were nearly 1,000 pastors being employed by the church. Tithe similarly rose from 12000 to $700,000 every year. And you know, the funny part is, is Daniels thought that if every church member was paying tithe as they should, that number should be doubled. Of course, every church administrator has thought that. The church went from having two papers, 
1863 to 90 papers in the early 1900s. Now, the really amazing statistic to me is that in the early 1900s, the church ran 500 schools with 11,000 students. So that's 80,000 members, 11,000 students in their schools. Boy, those members are having a lot of kids, man. Of course, I mean, not all of those students were Adventists. But that's still a fantastic ratio of one student to eight members. For a little bit of historical context, today that ratio is about one student to 235 members. Well, like I said, Daniels loved numbers. And not all of the numbers, of course, because... Even though Adventist membership was doubling every decade, there were serious problems. For example, Daniels didn't know that Adventist membership would never double in a decade again, although it came awfully close in the 1980s. Shout out to the 1980s. Daniels lamented how, in 1904, North America had only added 845 members that year. Okay, this was a church that was used to growing by about 2,000 members every year. North America, which was its big engine for growth, where most of the members were, had only added 845 members that year. Worse still, Daniels noted, the average amount of money spent to win those 845 members was the equivalent of $15,000 today per person. That includes all the evangelistic series that were being done, sending out the call porters, all of that. The whole system was spending about $15,000 in today's money to win each and every one of those 845 members. Now, in the rest of the world at the same time, where there were fewer pastors, fewer members, fewer buildings, the cost to bring somebody into the church was about $4,000 in today's money. So Daniels chastised the North American church for their giving, for their efforts. The average tithe from outside of North America was actually higher than it was inside of North America. And in Daniels' view of the world, the rest of the world was poorer than America. Adventists from around the rest of the world gave more must mean that they sacrificed more, right? Because they didn't make as much money. And to Daniels, sacrifice was a sign of loyalty. Most of the church's growth was happening outside of North America, which is still true today, of course. But for Daniels, church growth was not hard. It wasn't a secret. You didn't need to read any books or to consult some sort of church growth guru. It was really simple. Daniels declared, quote, Truly the secret of the vitality and of the triumphant march of the Church of Christ through the world lies in its missionary endeavor. As soon as the Church turns its attention, its efforts, and its expenditures from the great perishing world to itself, it begins to lose its vitality and power. End quote. In other words, Daniels believed that Adventists in North America were getting lost in the numbers representing all of the churches, the schools, the sanitariums, and the offices they had built. Money and effort was going into maintaining what they already had rather than advancing with a missionary-like zeal to further the gospel. 
to be sure, this was a hugely simplistic way of looking at the problem. Adventists often build these institutions, these sanitariums and schools, by drumming up a frenzy of support for the down payment with the rest of the balance, which is usually a huge sum, due a few years later when the attention of church members had moved on to the next shiny project. Administrators then were left to figure out how they're going to pay for it. We've talked before about how the North American church was buried alive in debt by the time that Daniels came onto the scene. Well, you can't operate that way forever. The frustration for Daniels was that he believed that American conferences were, on the whole, being selfish. Iowa, in particular, had 116 churches in its conference and about 50 pastors and Bible workers on the payroll. That's one church worker, one church employee for every two churches in the conference. Now, this wasn't unique to Iowa. I'm not just trying to pick on Iowa. Michigan was even worse. Michigan had been split up into three separate conferences, and Western Michigan had about 50 workers, that's pastors and Bible workers, 50 workers for 77 churches. All of this led Daniels to tell American congregations that they've been spoiled and that they should be able to get on just fine without pastors, without Bible workers. Who can tell, Daniels said, quote, why 720 of our ministers should be located in America among one-twentieth of the world's population, while only 240 of our ministers are sent forth to work for the other 19 twentieths, end quote. I told you, he loves those numbers. Daniels wanted nothing more in the whole world than for Adventists in North America to catch the global vision and look beyond their squabbles and just see the big picture of what's going on, see what the church is trying to achieve on the global stage. Daniels made it a point, as the self-appointed missionary-in-chief, to travel around America raising money for missions. And it could be an incredibly frustrating job. When he got to Iowa, he found the saints there arguing, and pressing them for money would be useless So he just went on to Nebraska. There, too, they were arguing about something else. I don't know, the price of tofu or whatever. And it seemed like just this insurmountable task to get American conferences to stop looking inward at their own problems and look outward. Local conference leaders would tell Daniels that they had this project and that project and the other project that urgently needed funds. Besides what was going on in their backyard, black Adventists like Louis Schieff wanted a slice of the pie, too. So did the Danes, the Norwegians, and the German immigrants in America. So did the Germans in Germany, which resented the fact that the General Conference seemed to favor England, even though Germany had about five times the number of members. And of course, building sanitariums around the world took money, too. And when they wanted to build a sanitarium in London, that money was coming from America, most of it, right? Whenever a member held a dollar bill up in his hand in church, there might be 15 project leaders jumping over the pews to tackle him for it. 
Okay, I mean, not literally. That was just a metaphor. But come on, that'd be an awesome way to do offering, wouldn't it? Anyways, besides the money issue, it was never as simple as just sending missionaries to a country, waiting, and then boom, you have a new conference in a few years. It was very much like Jesus' parable of the sower. Some seed fell on hard ground, some fell among the thorns, some fell on fertile soil. I mentioned earlier that Adventist missionaries went to Romania in the early 1900s. Sharp listeners might remember that our old friend M.B. Chukowski, that former Polish priest who did whatever he wanted, had visited Romania in the 1860s. After he left, J.N. Andrews looked after Romania from a distance while he was in Europe. George Ida Butler visited in the 1880s. Louis Conradi, a German Adventist who we will talk about more in the future, he visited in the 1890s. But it wasn't until 1907 that a Romanian conference was finally organized. It wasn't always enough to just drop a missionary somewhere and wait for fruit. Sometimes you just had to keep pounding away. Besides that, missionaries were dying of malaria in Zimbabwe. The Boer War was raging in South Africa, where a young man named Winston Churchill was winning a name for himself. Daniels actually showed up to witness a part of this war, and it was a challenge for the church. The work in Australia was sputtering now that she was bereft of Daniels, Willie White, and Ellen White. Missionaries in Africa and Asia were wondering what they should do about polygamy. Right? What do we do when we want to baptize somebody who is married to several women? Most of the believers in the Netherlands were slipping away at one point, claiming to have some new interpretations of old Adventist doctrines. China was tough especially since Adventists first landed there after the Boxer Rebellion. Adventists landed in Japan during its war with Russia. It was not easy being a global church. And through all of this, we might say Daniels had 99 problems, but at least Ellen White wasn't one of them. No, I mean, I just threw that in there for no reason whatsoever. Well, I mean, I should say I threw that in there because Daniels did have a ton of problems, and thankfully, Ellen White was not one of them. Ellen White and Daniels had a wonderful working relationship. And talking about Daniels' 99 problems should also help us put everything we've talked about in context. Because it's easy when we're talking about Louis Sheaf to wince and be like, man, Daniels really blew it. Well, he did in some ways. But when you see the huge pile of uncooked vegetables that were just dropped on his plate... Maybe it lessens the sting of his failures a little bit. He had a lot going on. Of course, many of the problems this global church faced were cultural. Just to give you an example, the Germans, Danes, and Swedish immigrants in America didn't always get along for some reason. And at one point, many of them wanted their own separate conferences. So a meeting was called, and a general conference vice president tapped out and invited Ellen White into the ring she hit this issue head on. This is what she said, quote, Our German and Danish and Swedish brethren have no good reason for not being able to act in harmony. Christ recognized no distinction of nationality or rank or creed. The scribes and Pharisees desired to make a local and national benefit of all the gifts of heaven and to exclude the rest of God's family in the world. But Christ came to break down 
every wall of partition. He came to show that his gift of mercy and love is as unconfined as the air, the light, and the showers of rain that refreshed the earth, end quote. And surprisingly, I mean, given the way that many of these latest episodes have gone, everyone just swallowed her counsel, digested it, and went home. I mean, how can you argue with that? In March 1903, Adventists across the world were picking up a strange issue of the Review. Now, lately, the Review had been experimenting with cover pictures, usually of some sort of natural beauty. But this one was different. This cover was the picture of a man many readers had never seen before. But they knew who he was. His name was at the bottom. And everybody knew the name of Uriah Smith. Now they would know that he had died. Fully one-third of that issue was dedicated toward covering his death. Arthur G. Daniels wanted to convene the General Conference Committee to offer some kind of official statement, which was a favorite pastime of the General Conference. But he could only find three members in town, so Daniels wrote a little something on their behalf. The fact that the committee wasn't all in Battle Creek, right, this was before they moved to Washington, was a sign that the Seventh-day Adventist Church really had been changing. With the reorganization in 1901 and the fire that took the Review and Herald office along with the sanitarium in 1902, the tumultuous first decade of the 20th century was reforging the church into an institution that a younger Uriah Smith couldn't have dreamed of. And so the death of Uriah Smith at age 70 was a deeply symbolic event. As the Review and Herald office had perished, so had its longtime editor four months later. It's worth remembering that Uriah Smith began as editor of the Review back in 1855. Smith basically held that position for the next 45 years. Of course, Jones took a turn at the wheel for a few years in there, but Smith was ready to take it back over. It wasn't until the last year of Smith's life that church leaders again pried the review from his fingers and gave it to W.W. W. Prescott. Every time I say W.W. W. Prescott, I think I'm going to be talking about a web address. Anyways, Smith was simply too old and too cranky to continue the job any longer. Less than a year after he had lost his job for the last time, he was walking back to the Review and Herald offices within sight of the massive three-story building. Smith suffered a stroke and died. He had never fully recovered from having lost his job, which, let's be honest, wasn't really just a job for him. It was his life work. On Smith's desk lay an unfinished letter addressed to the delegates of the next general conference session. In it, Smith fought hard against the tide of modernization and new ideas that were creeping into the church, and he urged the church to cling to those old teachings. His letter rehashed old issues, but it was also an old man's valediction a statement of his own principles as seen through his life. In his letter, Smith lamented that many were, quote, turning away from the old and well-established views 
speaking of them as back numbers, behind the times, etc. Time was when all who were considered sound in the faith felt reasonably sure that they could tell what Seventh-day Adventists believed. All held the same truths and expressed the same views. But at the present time, all of this is sadly changed. What sentiments a Seventh-day Adventist may express now, when questioned in regard to his faith, is a matter of much uncertainty. These things ought not so to be. It is too late in the day to be in such doubt and confusion as this. End quote. Smith was a conservative to the last. Contrary to Kellogg's attempts to rebrand the sanitarium as non-denominational, Smith was adamant that these institutions had to be thoroughly Adventist, that the name Seventh-day Adventist meant something, that she wasn't just one more denomination out there. Smith was worried that everything he built over the past 50 years would just be fumbled away shortly after his death. He was worried about whether the next generation was ready. He worried, in part, because it's hard to let go. Smith's death really did represent an end of early Adventism. The next generation, like Jones and Wagner, Prescott, Daniels, Louis Sheaf, and so on, had been rising up since the 1880s. But the old guard had always been around in case they were needed. Uriah Smith, George Ida Butler, Loughborough, Stephen Haskell were never too far away from those in power. Ellen White had written a stirring letter to the church just before Uriah's death, and it's worth quoting at length before we move on. She wrote, quote, The cause needs the help of the old hands, the aged workers, who have had years of experience in the cause of God, Many of the tried servants of God have fallen asleep in Jesus. Let the help of those who are left alive to this day be appreciated. Let not the fact be lost sight of that in the past these earnest wrestlers sacrificed everything to advance the work. The fact that they have grown old and gray in the service of God is no reason why they should cease to exert an influence superior to the influence of men who have far less knowledge of the work and far less experience in divine things. Though worn and unable to bear the heavier burdens that younger men can and should carry, their value as counselors is of the highest order. They have made mistakes, but they have learned wisdom from their failures. They have learned to avoid errors and dangers, and are they not then competent to give wise counsel? They have borne test and trial. And though they have lost some of their vigor, they are not to be pushed aside by less experienced workers who know very little about the labor and sacrifice, who know very little about the labor and self-sacrifice of these pioneers. The Lord does not thus lay them aside. He gives them special grace and knowledge. End quote. Ellen White never would have written this if there hadn't been some anxiety among the pioneers about being pushed aside or some resentment among the younger Adventists about the mistakes of their elders. It's easy to write off Uriah Smith as this cranky old dinosaur who never made it onto the ark of righteousness by faith. 
It'd be easy to define him by what happened in 1888. But both Ellen White and the others who eulogized Uriah Smith rebuked such sentiment. Uriah certainly had done his part in stubbornly stoking the fires of that old controversy from time to time. But in the middle of this painful generational change, Ellen urged the church to get through it with grace. The young should not resent the old for their mistakes as spiritual parents, and the old shouldn't scoff at the new generation and doubt their quality. Uriah Smith had been among the handful of men and women who so powerfully shaped the church. And his death reminds us that the church had grown to such an extent that it was beyond the power of just a few pioneers to change anymore. Shortly before Uriah died, an Adventist by the name of George McCready Price published a book establishing something called creationism in contrast to something called evolution. This was beginning to be a hot topic. Adventists from around the world were asking questions about military service because many of them lived in countries that required at least a few years of service. Suddenly there were schools popping up in Korea and China and Mexico. And if you just held your breath and closed your eyes for a moment, the Adventist world would pass you by. Everything was moving at such a pace. All around America and Europe, there was this boundless optimism. There hadn't been a big war in Europe since Napoleon for the first time in who knows how long. The progressive movement in America was in full swing. Automobiles were beginning to appear on the road. The Wright brothers down in North Carolina were trying to fly? What on earth? Uriah Smith was part of a small team of believers back in the old days, but this wasn't a small church anymore. She was spread around the world and spread thin, but the Seventh-day Adventist church was about to witness some of the most momentous and destructive events in human history. And to get us started in that direction, let me just say I feel the earth moving under my feet, not too far from Ellen's house. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go 
and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.